I'm Dan Schwester. And I'm Kevin Mazza. And today, Kevin and Dan spent their day in the big city. They went out to Manhattan. The uh, Big Apple. I did not join them. So today we're going to talk about a Boo. rundown. I don't know. We're going to talk about a uh, conference that they went to that was run by the good people at MCRIT, uh, Scott Weingart, Josh Farkas, those people. Um, I am hearing all this stuff for the first time, so it's going to be a conversation of uh, Dan and Kevin running through the conference, and we'll talk about what they saw. So going through, I, I know you guys spent the whole day up there. I'm really excited to hear about yes, all the did. things that you heard. So what is uh, what are some of the big points that you took away from this conference? Go ahead, Dan. No, go ahead, Kevin. All right. So <laughs> <laughs> you go. No, you go. So, so it's uh, there's a, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of information, a lot of it specifically things that happened in the ED, but a lot of this information can transfer to us out in the field. So they discussed the prevent trial, and then uh, the big thing is PEEP is absolutely critical. Um, pressure support might be a better choice than volume support for everybody who uses vents, our critical transport people, and some of our ALS projects that have that. And six milliliters per kilogram is bad. It's way too high. Um, Low. Six mil. No, six mLs per kilogram is way too high of a volume setting for your vent. Fight, 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 <laughs> fight, fight. See, I, t- <laughs> I took that from a different perspective. I, I, my understanding was that the six mLs per kg, the lung, per- lung protective ventilation. <clears throat> sorry, one of the things that they were talking about is that it's really uncomfortable for patients. It, it requires a lot of sedation. It requires a lot of uh, meds. And I think what the prevent trial, what they were quoting the prevent trial was, is that not everybody can do that six to eight mLs per kg and that, you know, maybe you do need a little bit more tidal volume and that might be okay. You're not going to put these people into ARDS. You're not going to put these people into a huge amount of problems. Um, going more on the vent management, I thought the interesting thing was they, they, the entire panel seemed to agree that, especially in septic patients, that they were better dry. Um, that the less fluid you put on board with these patients, the better they did. And that, that I thought was interesting because it's got, you know, for pre-hospital, you know, we've been hearing for years, you know, oh, sepsis, give them fluids, right, yeah. 30 per, 30 mLs per kg, right? And, you know, that's been pretty much gospel. Well, and that's, that's interesting to me because for a long time, it seemed like for a while we were just giving septic patients fluid somewhat arbitrarily. And then there was a hot minute where it was give them all the fluid, and then we had that short fr- time frame with target and temperature management, and now we're kind of back to a little bit less fluid. So w- it, one of the things that we've kind of talked about a lot on the show is we have no idea what the fuck we're doing. No. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I mean, you could even see just going through like MCRIT podcasts over the past two years, there was sepsis, you know, 2.0, 3.0. As right. it changed, it went, they went right along with it. So you're right. We, we're not 100% sure what we're doing, but it's looking like in, the, in order to prevent ARDS, we, oh, we're we currently fluid overloading based on current practice. And we need to back off. We need our patients more dry to prevent these um, ARDS situations. Yeah, they, were, they even mentioned, you know, Scott Weingart uh, mentioned uh, John Hines and the work that he did in the, uh, in the intensive care unit at his place uh, when he was alive. And one of the things that they did was almost aggressively take fluid off. Once they stabilized patients, they were really looking to almost diurese them and get that off so that they didn't have the lung problems. So when they were talking about pressures for septic patients, then we're looking just at pressure, presser drugs. Yeah, and getting pressers, fluid pushes. You know, little bits of fluid. You know, for the for your mildly septic patient, fluid is good. For your your sick septa, your your severe septic patient or your septic shock patient, you really should be looking at pressers. So one of the things that I think we have to focus on 
for this show is and part of the problem i think with a lot of conferences is that there are very few things that are focused on the pre-hospital setting everything is both is kind of based in the emergency department critical care so how can something like these findings translate to the pre-hospital environment because because I, I i hear like like the vent settings there's not a lot of pre-hospital units that carry vents no. um they probably should yeah this is more of a kevin don't. thing because i mean kevin being a flight guy he straddles that critical care intensivist ed world pre-hospital right. world so like what were you getting out of this where so, where is this going to start so, discussion with you and your medical right director? so going back to the prevent trial like you said i saw it as six to ten isn't help, or six to eight isn't really helping anybody but it's not unsafe to go up even to 12 according to the study i typically start my patients at four millimeters per kilogram and then recruit more long as i need um I don't think that's a bad idea. No, peeps is where I start. I would rather underfill them, especially when we get them in the field. They're they're effectively anesthetized. You know, like my patients are down. They've got ketamine. They've got fentanyl. They've got rock on board. Sure. Yeah. The big Small tidal volumes are probably safer in the beginning because I don't want to overfill their lungs. I don't want to push a you know cause volume trauma, barrow trauma because again the evidence doesn't show how many squeezes of that bag is going to cause it. Right. Well, getting getting into the, the BVM thing, that's going to be a whole different bad, conversation. Bad, bad, bad. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we can so get, get into that later. Another big thing they, they hammered home was that pressure support might be better than volume. Uh, yes. For your that's setting on your vent. So that kind of that kind of took me back. And I was like thinking, like, well, that makes sense because you don't know what how big someone's lungs are. And just going by ideal body weight doesn't really help at all because each person's different. We right. all have different um, habitus. So, um so Start, some kind of if you have a vent that has a pressure control, if you can have a pressure control, yes, where you're going to get it to a certain point, and that tidal volume once it reaches that pressure, that's the VT yeah. they get. That might be safer. And Doctor Weingart used an interesting uh, metaphor, basically knowing how you try to blow up a balloon, how hard is to initially inflate it, and then after you get it inflated, it's just much easier to keep adding air. Right. So the toughest thing is you're gonna you want. You want to get that balloon inflated first, but at the same time, you don't want to hyperinflate the other balloon that's in there. So uh, I found that the pressure support thing is something I'm going to see if I'm going to talk to my medical director about and say, hey, listen, vent patients, patients we are on a scene, and we, we hook them up to a vent afterward. Maybe we should look into going to pressure support versus a volume support because I don't know. And this is more, exactly. and again, this is more of an IFT thing where, you know, if I give somebody ketamine and rock uranium, I'm breathing for them. So yes. my vent setting is going to be different. You know, sure. it, either I've got I'm bagging them, or if I have a vent, I'm going to be using my vent settings. Well, but you also know, my it, AC but, or whatever. But it, aside from the vent thing, it also speaks to using a BVN. If you're in a situation pre-hospitally where you don't have a vent available to you, we tend to just kind of squeeze our full bag, which is going to hold about a thousand mLs. Right. So and it, it kind of speaks to like just squeezing a little bit, getting a little bit of compliance, a little bit of lung so volume. So, quick question: That wasn't at MCRITS. Are you still using adult BVMs? We are it's a now. Long pause. There is a long pause. Um, we actually did do a, a study that we put into a poster competition. We're actually putting it out for publication now. Um, we took um, we took a. a, a it was a simulation study, so that's the real big limitation of it. We used one of the, um, you know, the simulators where it measures tidal volume, tidal, you know, uh, pressure, you know, uh, inspiratory pressures right. and uh, ventilatory rates. And we, you know, we put people and like said, okay, here's two minutes. Go ahead and bag them with an adult size bag and bag them with a peed sized bag. Um, 
it was about 130 subjects. Again, not a huge sample size. And, you know, this is our first, my, my first foray into, you know, real research. So, you and know, 130 is a decent end. It's not, it's not, it's huge, not terrible. And it doesn't suck. It's, it's, clini- it's significant. So, but, yeah. um, we did find that, you know, when you used a PD bag, you got less of a, um, you got a more physiologically appropriate tidal volume, more physiologically appropriate pressures. Um, I think we can all agree that optimally anybody that's intubated or on an advanced airway needs to have a ventilator. And I think that's where we yeah. need to go. That's, I think that's, that's, that's getting at it a little bit too, but we've removed adult BVMs from the aircraft completely. Yeah. I mean, that's the, having you moved a, all have, your adult bags. We off. have, we have one stash away in case we have just some freakish Spot patient. Inspection. Who, some, <laughs> so, yes. <laughs> State legality things Shh, aside. Don't say anything. Every once in a while, you do have that patient that is either he's large. It's an arts patient that you didn't know is an arts patient. You don't right. have on a vent. You're going to need to give them a little extra volume to recruit more lung right. or, you know, you're setting up the vent and that's what you got. Yeah. So I've always been uh, squeezing. I will. I will tell you what we did with bags, which is kind of interesting. We're still using kind of an adult size. It's it's. um, But what we did do was we specified a twenty five centimeter pop off valve. Ooh. Okay. And you know, just like with a neonatal bag, you know, if you need the higher pressures, you can include it. You'll get the pressures, and we put a manometer on them. So every bag we have has a twenty five centimeter water. Um, pop-off valve it has a manometer and it is a peep valve mm-hmm. so we're at least cutting down the big the the big uh, pressure issues yeah um, that being said again ventilators if you need to do this you need to be on a ventilator and um, one of the things that they did talk about was the type of ventilator might matter too because if you were talking about um, when you're giving when you're ventilating a patient, the ones that have, you want the ones that have that ramped flow. Okay. Okay. So like when you take a breath in and you think about it, you go, you take a lot, like um, Scott Weingart said, with the, the balloon, like blown up balloon animals. Right. You give a lot of volume and pressure early. And as it fills, you tail it off. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a ramped curve. Right. Like an S curve. Like, oh yeah, yeah kind of. Exactly. Um, and that's more physiologically appropriate. It's more comfortable for your patients. And they kind of extrapolated that you probably need less sedation meds. You probably need less to keep them on there because that's more physiologic. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and I think that speaks to like your your LTVs, your your Revels, your, your really. Right. You know, I. We do not endorse any particular product. <laughs> no, we don't. No, sorry. But, but we're if open you're out there and you're doing those things, you know. <laughs> we're um, open to call good people at Revel. There's plenty, uh, I'm sorry about that, there is plenty of good <laughs> ventilators out on the market, um, but that is something that you should look for. It's I, I do think long term, there's no avoiding having ventilators on medic units. I, I just, it's not, we've already figured out that like BVMs are terrible and even if they're, even BVMs were great, we suck at it yep. and it's, Machines are better at things, except yeah. for doing CPR. Apparently. Your best, the best case, like I said. Ah, uh, here we go the, again with that. <laughs> mach- well, I for one welcome our robot overlord. <laughs> so going back to the vent thing and the airway thing, um, another big thing that Dr. Weingar had was the bigger ETTs are better. All adults oh, get eight yes. love it. Huge. Have I it. love hearing that. The, if you can, if they're an adult, you can get an eight O in them. Every adult should get an eight O tube, no questions. He's like, don't even bother using anything else. He said the biofilm. Uh, and the buildup over time, he goes, that that 7.0 is going to turn out to be 
much less. You're going to have higher ventilation pressures. You're going to have a, a more uncomfortable patient, which requires more meds, and it causes more problems. So there's a couple. There's no. He he has basically flat out said that there is no adult you can't put an eight o tube into. Right. Which is probably true. And there's a couple things just. I don't disagree. To, there's a couple things just listening to these things that are are at a distant level kind of frustrating for me that we're still talking that peep is critical in intubated patients i know and that a larger tube is better it is 2019 yeah and we're still talking about like hey by the way peep is good and you should intubate with large you tubes. should have a peep valve <laughs> yeah like I, I i get it i understand why they have to keep saying it because it doesn't get out to the masses the way it should but it's hearing that is somewhat irritating i know um but yeah no i, I i've i've seen adult patients intubated with a six five and <laughs> Yeah, like why? <laughs> it's if I get that patient, I'm switching it out. Well, exactly. So that that was something I always kind of. Well, I'm going to put out an idea, and this is for the you know the the advanced uh, clinicians out there who might be listening, and who are sitting here going, "They're nuts." I need my seven o tube. I need my seven five. Whatever. Oh, I'm not saying don't carry them. No, I'm not saying don't carry them. But I. But here's my uh, here's my argument, and and I'm going to make an argument for this because I. Didn't do it up until a, a while ago, and now I have come over to it as an airway provider, and I swear by it. Use a bougie on every intubation. Sure. Just yeah. do it. You know, stop. I used, and I used to do this too. Please, this is my confession. I used to do this too. I used to have the bougie on the side, and I'd be like, this is for my difficult airway, or the quote-unquote anterior. We've all said it. And this was my plan B or plan A too. If you can get a bougie in, you can get an 802 tube in. Sure. Well, but but beyond that, we're at an era where video laryngoscopy is fairly affordable and is becoming more and more ubiquitous. And there's, if you can't get it with a DL, just do it through a video, and then you can see the cords. You can actually get a tube in without too much problem. So going along with, the, especially not talking about VL, my biggest thing I dislike about VLs are the tracked blades where you have to place okay. a tube in it. Because yeah, this was good. We were talking f- about this on break. There's go, a few models that can that can accommodate an eight zero. You the the max they go is seven five. Okay, I think specifically the um, Pentax model. It's an older model, but it only can take a seven five eight zero. And I haven't quite figured out a way to put a bougie through there yet. Your mileage instead. may vary. Every manufacturer has their own specifications. And we Absolutely. always recommend yeah. that Absolutely. you go check your manufacturer. I, I speak I speak only, <laughs> yes, check the manufacturer recommendations on your product. I speak only from my experience. And then um, and we don't recommend one over the other. Is that good? Ed? No. <laughs> it's fine. The legal team will be very happy to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's one thing. But if, listen, you drop a 7.5 and you you can probably, if a 7.5 is better than a 0.0, zero, zero, right? And uh, yeah, a 7.5 okay. is better than and, nothing. Right. And just remember, we're not talking about the dynamic airways. We're not talking about your hematomas. We're not talking about your burned airways. We're talking about your flat out, yeah, your standard medical intubation standard. Patient, the one this patient needs times. a tube. The bigger you can get in there, the better it's going to be for them down the, down the road. They're going to have a better course. You're going to have a better... Uh, you're going to have a better way for the RTs to get down there and to, to do pulmonary toilet. You're going to be a better idea to, you know, better way to hold up against higher airway pressures from a biofilm. All this stuff builds up. It's just better. You're just doing better things for your patients. Yeah, I'll buy that. Did they do anything else on respiratory? Uh, we got to another thing, um, Dan, with the salad. If you want, to, I know this is like something you love, so you can talk about the salad when we're talking about the airway stuff. All right, we'll finish up with airway, and then we'll move into se- the the other part of sepsis with bicarb because that was kind of interesting too. Okay, um, so they uh, an interesting thing is this is again more of like an ICU thing. So 
the least invasive. They want to be as as minimally invasive as possible with an intubated patient. They would prefer if a patient's diaphragm is functioning. Obviously, unless of course there there's a physiological problem where they don't breathe on their own, or we've chemically paralyzed them, that for themselves to breathe on their own. And the minimal thing they want done is positive pressure, um, <laughs> PEEP, and CPAP for for everything. Just a little extra. Um, centimeters of water just to help the alveoli uh, inflate and then if they're tolerating it they're comfortable again a bigger tube helps and um, one of the physicians I believe it was Josh was talking about uh, Dr. Farkas had the patient sitting upright comfortable with a tube right. vent run um, and just just positive pressure because um, if you need to sedate your patient they're probably just uncomfortable and you just need to make them more comfortable either adjusting their vent settings or Maybe they need a bigger tube. So what, so what you're saying is they're essentially saying take the vent off of AC or SIMV and just put it onto CPAP and just yes. kind of let them breathe CPAP and pressure if, if support d- and if just they're, if they're, they're spontaneously working. breathing and their diaphragm's working, let them let them, let them do it. Let it's them better for them. Yeah. So I, I guess the, the first pushback would be what if they don't handle that particularly well? Then you put them back on. Then they just switch them over. Right. Okay. So um, they take a look. They give them a trial. They see how they do. If they start to desat or there's issues, then they just go back to what they were doing. Right. They talk about the normal physiological spo- responses. So you and I probably sit at 40 millimeters of mercury for our uh, end tidal CO2, correct? So when the physician said, put your arms over your head, hold your breath for a minute, you go up to 43 from holding your breath, your body wants to breathe. So it's easier to let the patient's body, their own body, determine their, their um, CO2 level. Right. If they have a working diaphragm, let them auto-regulate. You just kind of give them as little help as as they need. And that's yeah, that was cool for pressure. a bunch of intensivists to sit there and say, like, how little can we intervene in this patient yeah. to get them to get their body to do what they want well, to I, do? As, as more and more data comes out, I think we're learning more about the, the, the adage, you know, don't just do something, stand there. You know, we're we're finding out more. <laughs> You're and right. More. Yeah. So yeah. Sometimes like, less is more here. Yeah, we're finding out more and more that we have yeah, all these that, fancy interventions, and that that's going to drive people nuts. But the yeah. fact is, is that sometimes that's the best thing. And I and I, like obviously, someone who's on a vent, this applies more for you know your inner facility transports um, or longer distance transports. But I think that's that's probably one of those things that's going to be a little bit startling for people to hear. Right. Where you know what, you don't have to do any settings; just let them breathe. You know, have them be on their way. Yeah, they're vented. Just make sure they're comfortable. Right. And uh, going, going. That doesn't back mean a don't bit. watch them. No, no, doesn't mean, oh, they, no they're not, not talking <laughs> about this. They're not like <laughs> yeah. saying. Well, neither is okay, your patient. They're too. Have fun, <laughs> Mrs. Smith. You know, good luck. But yeah, it was. You know, it's just very interesting to hear that perspective, especially from a group of emergency med and intensivists that are type A, intervene, do the thing. Right. It was very cool. Right. So. To go, and if they said, uh, so if your patient's uncomfortable, you shouldn't be, I mean, if your patient's agitated, restless on the tube, it's not because they're having trouble breathing, it's because they're just uncomfortable. So you want to make them more comfortable. Um, and they preferred fentanyl over benzos to do that. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll buy that. I think most people prefer fentanyl over benzodiazepines, but. Absolutely. And then um, they also. Did they, did they have any conversation about using say something like ketamine over fentanyl or was it just just fentanyl instead of the benzos? Um, they they liked fentanyl a little bit better um they liked fentanyl um i think rory spiegel was actually even talking about morphine yeah uh, dr spiegel did which was kind morphine of which there. was just, kind of interesting right so they were actually looking at especially for like adding respiratory <sighs> issues just the slight bit of like chill out that you get from fentanyl versus ketamine right um ketamine you're a lot of people especially when you're giving low dose they have that I don't know about you, and this is strictly anecdotal. Anecdotal for me, 
you give them an initial dose of ketamine, they get a little weird for like a good 30 seconds because sure. they feel the ketamine kind of mm. what's happening to me. Right, and that, that dissociation thing too. Right, the whole dissociation thing pops in where you give them fentanyl and it's just how they are and then you just take it down a couple notches. Well, and also I guess with ketamine it would have some like sidetrack sympathomimetic function right, as well. Right, specifically, yeah, the sympathomimetic. You're going to have the bronchodilation right. and you're going to have a slight bump in blood pressure and you have a pretty... Uh, Depending on like where you're at with your your ventilated patient, you may not want to play around with that too much. Where yeah, again, I don't think this safer. is something that a lot of you know, quote unquote, you know, talking from about like a street medic. Yeah, I don't know how much value this has for us. It's I, interesting. Well, no, I think if you have, it's a, very interesting to know. Yeah, but I think it's more for the inner facility critical care transport communities. You know, the the, the well, I think if you that, if you have someone, if you're in a project where you're doing more like a DSI. Um, protocol for intubation as opposed to an RSI if you're not actually introducing a paralytic I, I think it's it, there's some value to it if you have a transport Absolutely. that's 35 minutes long there's plenty you know, of places you know that's probably better to give fentanyl than ketamine 100% there's plenty of places that don't um, give paralytics for their intubated patients um, they don't have RSI yeah so yeah, we got we got away with it even with RSI we you know we don't do the follow on Par- right. paralysis right. And, and don't, don't listen wrong, go like, to go to an ICU nobody's on a nobody's on a VEC drip yeah, well, or a rock drip. Very, I mean, very, very rarely I mean, have I ever seen a vec drip. Well, and, and that's the thing. Like introducing a drug like rock in RSI is perfectly fine, and it it works to our purpose because we keep them down for at least forty minutes. Right. But if you're in a project where you're only giving sucks, and you don't have a long term paralytic on your back end, and you know sucks has a half life of seven minutes, so you're gonna have to find something that's actually going to you know sedate them enough or right. make them comfortable enough during that transport. That's exactly what I was gonna say. Some places don't. Need, they might have sucks, but they don't have a rock or a right. vecuronium. So, how do you manage that ventilated pa- or that uh, intubated patient um, without a long-term paralytic where you can take control? Well, the the key is make them comfortable, give them some fentanyl as you need, and then just do your best to let them auto-regulate their untitled CO2 if right. they can, if so, the diaphragm's working. So, with all this talk with ventilated patients, did they talk about, like, goal end titles or goal SPO2s at all? Or was it just all keep well, them down? Keep SPO2 them is interesting. Nobody really talked too much about a goal and title but i was very interested to hear how low of an spo2 they were willing to tolerate in patients how low can you go yeah they did they did mention end title but they said they were willing to tolerate higher end title co2s based on the patient presentation other factors around it wasn't just shoot for a number they weren't they weren't chasing 40 millimeters of mercury or 35 to 45 they were just like they were they were okay seeing high 50s Maybe some low twenties. It depended on, on the right. pa- again. It t- depended on the patient's comfort. Uh, depending on what you what they were really cool in that they were actually you know they weren't worried about numbers. What okay. they were looking at was patient presentation. If you showed them, hey doc, this guy's got an end title of X, their first response is, okay, what are they doing? So I I think that's really important, even having not seen that because we talk about numbers a lot and like standard numbers that we're looking for whether it's you know an end title of 40 a sat of 96 whatever without actually looking at the patient and not considering whatever comorbidities they might have yeah there right. was only one there was only one hard line number they talked about that they were but we'll get to that in a little bit right um now go back to the pulse ox or an spo2 um dr weingar specifically mentioned your vented patients should probably be hanging out at 90 to 91 and that's where they're talking about comfort level with the other physicians between dr spiegel and dr fargus um about you know where where do you start being like eh, we gotta do something right so mid 80s 
depending on which one you ask. They were like, uh, there was yeah, there was a comfort level between anywhere from like eighty six to ninety percent SpO two, where they were like, okay, we got to do something. Right. So go uh, break that down a little bit because there's a lot of people that are gonna be really uncomfortable with those numbers. There's there are there's gonna be plenty of people uncomfortable with that. So, <laughs> Dr. Weingart specifically said ninety to ninety six. You don't want to go above ninety six uh, with your ventilated patients. Um, They're very concerned about hyperoxia. Yeah. So, okay, go, go into that a little bit because that's so that's, hyper, that's gotten the, a lot of play in the right, past year or so. Right. The idea of hyperoxia is that, you know, you we always believe that, you know, running somebody at 100% full saturation of oxygen is uh, fantastic, um, that this is with the goal. The problem is, is that, and you're going to have to help me because you had a little bit more science than I did. Um, science. That... <laughs> The fact is, is that once you reach an SpO2 of 100%, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the amount of oxygen you have in the blood. Right. Oh, no, so, no, 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 no. Your partial, your partial pressure that just of means your blood. That just up. means that your, your hemoglobin is 100% saturated right. with oxygen molecules. That doesn't mean that there's tons of other oxygen molecules that are now roiling through your blood. Well, right, and we don't that are not attached. And, and at the and that's level, your partial pressure of O2 or your PaO2. Yeah. So when you do a blood gas, you might have somebody who's been on 100% oxygen for 50 minutes, an hour, two hours, right? And their blood gas comes back, and their PaO2 is 300, 400, 500. Now. We've always been taught in EMT and paramedic school, and I was taught that, and you were taught that, and everybody was taught that, that oxygen doesn't hurt. False. That's a falsehood. <laughs> we lied to you. We're sorry. <laughs> Do better, Dan. I'm sorry. Well, no, but sometimes we don't, you know, it's little things that we don't ever talk about. And I wonder how much of it is we don't talk about it for time, but, you know, you get into things like, you know, superoxide radicals that can actually cause damage. And you know, that's exactly what they were touching. To, right. That's what they were touching on is that. This stuff causes cellular damage. It causes more problems down the road. And this is something we need to avoid because we're causing this. Just like they were talking about with ARDS. They're like, you know, we used to give these people 10, 12 liters of fluid in the first 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And then they're on a vent and, you know, they're whited out. And we're trying to ventilate them at, you know, 45 centimeters of water pressure. And we can't even get their SpO2s up past 85. Right. And we're going, you know, we've got nothing here because we can't recruit. We've got VQ mismatch. We've got all these problems. And we did it. Yeah. Because we pumped them full of fluids. Yeah. And that's another thing that we kind of go back to where we're taught at the very beginning of our training that, you know, you want to get a good high sat level. You want to get 100% oxygen. And we start to teach people at a very early level all the wrong things. And then we have to do what we're doing right now, where it's you have to unlearn all the things that you learned as time goes on. And that, that can be a really frustrating thing in any practice. But So, all right, so we're going for 96% on SpO2. That's, which that's what we th- want to cap out at. And that's yeah. that, they wanted that to be the high point. That's the high point. Yeah. Well, that's, pretty, look, that's pretty consistent with Listen, you that's, know, AHA. That's an A. That's good enough. You know, <laughs> nine, nine, AHA says, what, 94 to 99? Right, you're also yeah. talking about a plus or minus 4% on your SpO2. Yeah, it's, yeah. I, I don't think Breathing that's earth-shattering, anyway. but I think it just shows we need to be more paying more attention. And, you know, when you get somebody who's got a SAT of 90, 91, you know, that's pretty. That's okay as long as they're not in an acute distress. Yeah, right. are, and they also you mentioned their like you know the lab work specifically hemoglobin. If they have the oxygen carrying uh, ability, ninety percent is just oh, fine. Oh, thank God you remembered this. This was good. <laughs> 
No, just um, Doctor Doctor um, Farkas. Farkas. Yeah, he was talking about a hemoglobin of fifteen, and you know, listen, that's fine. More than enough to carry ninety percent, you know, bound oxygen to where it's got to go. That's fine. And I'm uh, that's kind of like where I was like, whoa, ninety percent. Like, oh man, the ninety four number I just got used to. Now, well, I've, I've been comfortable with 94 for a long time, but like, right. I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, we don't give oxygen unless their SpO2 is below 94%. That was a shock to a lot of people. Right. Now he's saying 90%, and his little caveat was like, oh, listen, even if they're at like in the high 80s, I'm not too worried as long as their hemoglobin's fairly normal because that's still completely sufficient oxygen-carrying capability to get good end-organ perfusion and oxygen. Right. Again, and this doesn't matter, and, and gang, anybody who's out there listening, this doesn't count for anybody who you think is in shock. Yes. Right, no. But Different I, game. But I, I think it translates fairly well. If you have someone who is generally healthy appearing and has, you know, good skin color, they have decent yeah. perfusion at that point, so yeah. the hemoglobin is going to be fairly <laughs> adequate. You know, talking about the LLS score. <laughs> the wine card LLS the, score. Yeah, w- it's actually an MD calc. If you have the app, is it really? Yeah, yeah. You know what it is? Go ahead. The looks like shit score. Hey, does the patient it, look like shit? Yes, that's one, a positive. That's one a positive. Point, there it is. That's a positive finding. That's a positive finding. That's the whole scale. He's a positive LLS. <laughs> but that's that's kind of the point. Is you know, if you see someone and like they look okay, and you find that their stat is like ninety five, you probably don't have to worry about it. Which is you know, it's it's. To an extent, it's reassuring because I think for years we've been fighting back against that where, you know, we're, we got we finally got to a point where, you know what, non-rebreathers probably aren't ideal for everybody. You know, no. we've, we've gotten away from the dogmatic, you know, 15 liters non-rebreather for everybody type of teaching. And now we're into the nasal cannula. And then we had to have the fight of, like, you can actually use a nasal cannula for high flow. It's not just for two to six liters per minute, despite what we're taught in EMT and medic school. And now we're moving on from that. And now it's yep. to the point where, like, it, may, it turns out room air might be perfectly fine for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So that's, I think that's that's interesting to see. Um, it's interesting to hear because I don't think that's out, that's in the lexicon as much as it should be. Yeah, I, I think that was great. And the other thing, too, is like, you know, here's the cool thing. These are all intensivists. These are all the gadget guys. These are emergency the medicine, critical guys. care. We bring all these things to bear. They want to do ECMO. They want to do vents. They want to do all this crazy Rebella. stuff. But in the end... They're embracing that old school GP mentality where it was like, put your hands on the patient, look at your patient, talk to your patient, touch their hands, see if they're, are they, are they warm? Are they cold? Right. Like this is basic medicine. This is the art of medicine. This is the old family doctor like walks in and looks and just knows the kid's sick. That I thought was a very cool perspective. Well, and that's the, that's the basis of all medicine is, you know, seeing and talking to a patient first like all the fancy stuff is nice like right. we're, we're going to talk about Reboa in a minute um mm-hmm. I, I like that's i i think in 10 years we're going to be putting Reboa in the field regularly i hope oh so boy but i, mean, I dan you have no idea how excited oh i am for this god but no. but that notwithstanding you know this you still why to, i'm here you still have to know like what the patient looks like and how they sound I get it, the stuff that you learn, and I, I was I was teaching this the other night. It's not just it's, techniques and procedures. No, it's, it's not the, the knowledge and putting hands on. Yeah, patients. the the assessment that you learn your first day of EMT school is literally the assessment that you learn in medical school, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's like to the point where it's almost the same thing. Like and how the, cool is like that? sample OPQRST all that kind of stuff. It's literally yeah. the same thing. So it's like the stuff that we know. When we start our EMT and medic training, is the stuff that translates through these, you know, these you just get you just get more toys in the box, right? But the bottom line is to make the decision on those toys. You're using the same things you learned in EMT school. Oh, absolutely. That's that's amazing. Talk to me about shock. 
talk to you about shock. So we talked about there's a one hard and well, fast and number. Shock is a mis- is a problem uh, with perfusion. Poor perfusion of the tissue. Yes, know. yes, yes, yes. Mitochondria powers us all. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> So the one hard and fast number that they were really, really, really hammering home was that you got to keep an eye on your MAP, which is your mean arterial pressure. Um, oh, yeah. Yes, Dr. Weingart specifically said anything below 60, by the minute you have an increased incidence of organ injury, specifically in your kidneys and your your um, more distal organs. Yeah. So protect MAPs at all costs, and crystalloid fluids aren't going to cut it. Go to pressors. So how do you calculate a MAP, Kevin? That's going to be your systolic blood pressure plus your diastolic times two divided by three. Hey, look at that. Yeah, I'm wow. a flight medic. Also, your life pack typically, if you carry a life pack, but most most monitors will just show you a map. <laughs> we don't recommend <laughs> one brand of monitor over the <laughs> other. Man, I didn't know I was going to get quizzed tonight. Good thing I remember that. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> so if you're, if you're treating someone who you think is shocking and you're wondering what their map is, typically whatever monitor you carry will show an, a map in the box for blood pressure. That's yes. what that third Okay, is. now, here's here's the cool thing. Let's talk about NIBPs, and let's talk about A-lines, and let's talk about that getting that map, and what's the best way we can do it. Well, let's, let's back up. Dan, what's your opinion on A-lines in general? Do you think it's something that, sh- that should be a consideration in the field for more accurate blood pressures? Yes. I think it's I think it's something that should be considered. I'm not saying it belongs on every patient, but I think that we're coming to a point where if we've got a sick patient and we're transporting them, especially in a critical care environment, but even with What's, you know an EMS environment where you've got a sick patient, a peri arrest patient, or a shocky patient, you you should have that ability to do that. Yeah, no, I I, I, I don't completely agree I don't with think you. it's difficult. I don't think it's something that a paramedic or an advanced paramedic couldn't do. Mm-hmm. I think we're afraid to do it. Oh, I think I, I think it's something new and it's scary and you know. Well, but in the end, that it's being pretty, said, we've all started art lines by accident. I have. I mean, it's it's a thing that we do. Uh, Early in my career, I remember welcome starting to an rookie line. world. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. My <laughs> first year, I did start an A line in this extremely thin woman's. Um, I guess her brachial artery, and then I infused D50 through it, and I was like, "Man, oh why is there so good. much blood in there this?" Good for you. And I turned to Mike D. Filippo. He goes, "Oh, dude, I think you're in an artery." <laughs> like, and that's uh, why he's an MS3, folks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good time. But I, I think, I think they made a real persuasive case. Um, they talked about the NIBP, and they talked about they talked about MAP as really that is the number we should be looking for. Stop worrying about your systolic, diastolic. Mean arterial pressure is perfusion. That's what matters. So I, I think that's something that we should start teaching at the introductory level. Yeah, um, EMT. Yeah, you can calculate a map at EMT. I just, if, if my old stupid ass, um, yeah, we're explicit. My old stupid <laughs> ass can remember the map formula where it's on my monitor. An EMT can calculate in like, it's got a phone, 20 seconds. It's not hard. No, but, there's but even you, apps now on your phone that you put in a systolic and a diastolic. It will you give map. you a map. But I think conceptually it's important to teach. Instead and I of, think we should be teaching saying, that number you know, 60. They were talking they were talking 60. 
I'm going to call 65. I'm like, look, if you're at 65, you need to be worried as a, as sure. right. a you're non-physician th- provider. Six, yeah. 60 is already, that's already the bottom of if the I'm like, 60, you're already behind the if ball. If I've got if somebody with 60. a map of 65, I'm going, oh boy, I got an issue here. Right, exactly. But that's Get what I'm saying. It, if we start teaching that at the, at the beginning, we're like, this is what a map is. Instead of saying, like, someone is hypertensive if there's, you know, diastolic is 90. Like yeah. that, it's, it, I don't think we're helping. It's completely arbitrary to teach it that way. Sure. So you know, we, that's so the reason I mentioned it that way is like this is whenever we go to these conferences, for me, one of the most difficult things is coming home because you learn all these things and mm-hmm. there's all this exciting stuff out there and you come back and there's, it's very difficult to apply. But something like that, I'd agree with that, like something like that, that's a turnkey thing. You just be like, hey, now we're going to start going by maps instead of diastolics. Yeah, and you really want to get in your maps. You can really get into uh, how you treat your different stroke patients too. Sure, but that's that's a conversation for another well, time. Some people have modified their protocols to reflect a map of sixty-five, but some some people, some people, some mysterious people. <laughs> yeah, right. that that was our hard and fast number. Go to presses immediately. Uh, they expounded upon that a little further. Traditionally, norepi has been believed to be a central line only drug. It's safe peripherally. Look at that. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I've, um, I mean, I've Weingart been... was very big on norepi. Um, he thought it was more physiologically appropriate. He talked about the beta effects. Kevin, yeah, he jump was, in on this. I'm not trying to. He was a be he was a, he was a big fan of its more of its um its more focused effects versus epi specifically and. Dr. Weingart believes that we'll be giving norepi during cardiac arrest and not epi because of its more focused physiological effects during a arrest period. He, he thinks epi is garbage. And to be frank, I can like, buy that. to be frank, like the more the more I read about epi and after the paramedic two trial, which is great, but there's still more evidence. Epi's got its place. Sure. I don't. I don't deny uh, that. We're gonna fight. No, we're not. We yes. are gonna fight. Well, fight me in public. <laughs> Meet me outside. So Let's I, do it. I think epi has its place, but it's. That place is quickly. It is the god of the gaps, in my opinion. But don't have an answer. Epi. Disagree. And that that space, that gap is slowly, Disagree. slowly shrinking. Disagree. All right, go ahead. Look, I, I agree. Look, I like what he's saying, and and nor Epi, I would probably, but look, I, I'm a Scott. Everybody knows I'm a Scott Weingar fanboy. Um, I started cutting my teeth with this stuff in the podcast world, listening to him. I still think that Epi is important. I think Epi is a good drug. I think for the vast majority of our clinicians pre-hospitally, it is easy to mix. It's easy to work with. You everybody's comfortable. Everybody's comfortable with it. Well, you can if you're going to do but a it, drip. Okay, so it's it, it's it, something. So to play devil, no to play devil's advocate here, if something is easy to use, yeah, despite the evidence of its efficacy, show me is the that ev- something. We show should... me the evidence that Epi. All right, you're going to call a paramedic two trial. You're going to you're going to throw it's not that. A paramedic two. It's in general. But you're, you're going to say show know, me the evidence it doesn't work. But I'm going to say show me the evidence it does. But again, going back to the paramedic two trial, going back to the show, the show we did on it, I think that just shows that we don't know what the hell we're doing with it. Right, but I think that supports Kevin's point that it has a place. It's just not necessarily in cardiac arrest. I don't know what that place is, but it, it it's a medicine that is very powerful. It's got great um, alpha and beta effects. It works great in our asthma patients. Yes, yeah. our um, anaphylactic patients it's so, a great drug i just don't think i still like epi 
So and, and that's fine. So that's but, on you. But, but I here's, still think it's got a place <laughs> in the future of cardiac arrest. But but the but here's the question. So we've been using. Did you ap- just tell me? To go? <laughs> I did. I did tell you. You can go in that direction. But we've. Please. So we've been using epinephrine now for 45 years in cardiac arrest, and our survivability is still around six percent. Hasn't really but if we're, But so what if we're doing so it wrong? Okay, but my question is: What if the what, effects what is, of the medication are actually good? But what it, is there any risk really to trying a different drug? No. That has that we know uh, has alpha effects on the heart. Not not arguing. They talked about that. They talked about phenylephrine. Yeah. They talked about norepi. Oh, they love um, phenylephrine. They love phenyl. But that's that's kind of the point. Is that it's it's not to say that we should eliminate epinephrine from the trucks. It's that it has a place. We've been using it for all this time, and we don't have increased outcomes. <laughs> So I, I is do, it but is it that like I, what what frustrates me is the conversation always ends up being like well we give too much epinephrine or we don't give enough there's a sweet spot I don't that think we have, we have find, a, I don't think we have an idea and we've talked about this I don't think we have an idea in hell of how much epi we're supposed to give sure. I don't think we have an idea in hell of how we're supposed to titrate it but I do think it has good effects I think it's got some things that we like it is right. very and, and easy we, for a we agree on that just not entry, for cardiac arrest entry level provider to to administer confidently. So we should give a drug that doesn't work because our rookies aren't There's good n- at mixing things? I that's, don't know. That's uh, more about us feeling good yeah. and not the patient feeling uh, good. Yeah. Uh, I think oh, you walked into your own trap there, didn't you? Uh, you womp bastards. Womp. <laughs> you <laughs> bastards. I don't know, Dan. If Epi makes you feel better, by all means. But, but I'm, I mean, I'm not... I, again, it... I agree that it has... A, it where has, is it going to hurt as a vasopressor? Let's talk... They're not talking about Epi and... Car- well... Dr. Weingart specifically mentioned he was saying cardiac, cardiac arrest. arrest. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Right. Now, no, listen. Now, push I'm dose, trying to. I'm pu- trying now, to. Now, push dose presser. A push dose presser in your hypotensive shock patients. Fine, absolutely. I'm cool with that. I am yeah, 100% fine. on board with push dose presser, specifically epinephrine. I'm not even opposed to an epi drip in cardiac arrest. Well, that's the other thing they brought up is that it probably should be a drip. That okay. we're not. That we're giving too much, and it's probably causing too much effect, and. It's not getting back to people we want to get back, right. but there are benefits to it at a lower dose. If we used it in a drip, okay. we'd probably get a decent effect. Would that be better than norepi? I don't think anybody knows. The, pa- the panel is kind of divided on this. Um, Weingar is completely against epi and cardiac arrest. Um, Rory wasn't. Rory was he was kind of he, he was okay with it. By the way, Come I gotta on. say I love that you guys are dropping names like you guys are hanging out. Like your old drinking I buddies. Saw the, I saw their faces. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my boy Rory over here. He's, it's, uh, uh, honestly, because they referred to each other by their first names, it was hard to remember every doctor's name that came up. I yeah. remember there was, I don't remember her name, but Ashley, Dr. Ashley. Who Ashley Shreves. Yeah. Yeah, palliative care. That's another thing. Oh, yeah. That yeah, was brilliant. That. Yeah. So, I mean, but uh, Dr. Philippe was not, he was the one who suggested running Epi as a drip during cardiac arrest. Um, Dr. Um, Rory. It's easy to remember their first names, and it is. Uh, and then they he was kind of against giving Epi all together. Apologies to all for using your first names. We completely respect. <laughs> I know, you know, it's, you're going to be you're going to be us. Us. they're yeah. listening. Doctor don't Scott, block, <laughs> don't block us on Twitter. Hey, Doctor Weingart's listening. Please don't call me. <laughs> Come on the show. Um, but and then Doctor uh, Weingart was uh, if I have a, any chance of patient going on ECMO, I am avoiding Epi. That was one thing. He did say there were okay. there. He thinks that there are points where you shouldn't give epi, and if it was a patient that was going to go on ECMO or you're considering ECMO, you shouldn't do it. He thought that epi had a role, probably tied to diastolic blood pressure. 
he okay. tends to think that that's the the future of this is that we're in the future and, and extrapolating out from his idea here's where i go back to the art lines right i think we're going to be a little more selective of who we resuscitate okay i think the people that we resuscitate are probably going to get art lines i think we're going to start epi drips or we might get nor epi we can do nor epi as paramedics right. uh, but we i have think no, we depending on which project you're depending at, on where you go depending on your it. medical director there are sure, some somebody. places that might do it but i think whatever vasopressor you're going to give in cardiac arrest it's going oh God. <laughs> so, you know what so do i so stop oh whiner well, not whiner. anyway <laughs> i'm bragging oh god yeah you your beard and your helmet children children um but I think that that's where we're going to go. And I think we're going to start seeing, I think we're going to see cardiac arrest survival go up. And I think we're going to see it more as a recoverable scenario because we're going to filter out survivable, salvageable, non-salvageable. Okay. I can get, I can and, get behind that. And I think, you know, one of the other things that they talked about, and we'll get into the palliative care part, is that, you know, there are people we probably shouldn't be doing CPR on. Sure. There are people that we should be allowing natural death that we should not be going in there with, you know, the whole cavalcade of stuff and starting compressions and, you know, not so much because it's brutal. And this was an interesting concept was that it was brought up and I don't remember who exactly said it, but Kevin helped me out was the idea that CPR is not physically brutal. It's spiritually brutal. That was Dr. Uh, Weingart. I like that. Yeah. That, you know, the person's dead. They have no feeling. Right. It's not something that they're going to suffer or endure. But what it is, is that it's spiritually not what, you know, it's spiritually brutal to the body. Right. Yeah. No, it, it I can. It absolutely is. And like, and, you know, as far as like, is, as, and also we have to plug as far as end of life care is concerned. Um, over on contributor Anna Ryan published a pretty great article in EMS World. Not yeah, she had a great that. blog post on EMS World. Um, yep. Go check it out, um, how we talk about these things. Um, I think, again, we're going to select more for cardiac arrest survivors. I think we're, or potential of survivability. I think we're going to allow a lot more natural death. Sure. And I think when we do it, we're going to be titrating. We're going to be looking at arterial, you know, we're going to be putting in arterial lines. We're going to do epi drips. Um, maybe in the peri-arrest day or maybe in that other afterwards, we're going to go to norepi and we might switch agents. Right. But we're going to do the, we're, we're going to select more. And I think you're going to see that survival rate go up. I, I, I can buy that. I think. Because it's going to be meaningful survival. Yeah. And I think that's something that we're not, again, it's something that we're not very good at is selectively choosing who we resuscitate and who we don't resuscitate. Right. I, I think we do a terrible I, job yeah. and I think we're forced to by dogma and by public perception right well and it, it's the dogma thing too where it's like well who are you to choose who lives and who dies Correct. like well i didn't choose it they already died yeah yeah um, you know you could even argue paternalism at this point too that's gonna get sure. into a whole bioethical debate which is something totally worth talking about oh, by absolutely the way. yeah and that's something i know jess is extremely passionate about her and i had a conversation at length about um, right. paternalism honoring pulses, dnrs family says do it Patients wishes As a matter of fact, yeah, that's got to be a whole nother show. Like, yeah, we're yeah. Gonna, not we'll, even we'll went into well, it. So Dr. Shreves, um, Dr. Ashley Shreves, went in specifically about Pulsed. Uh, this is some, re- some further research I want to do specifically regarding state our state law because there's something I want to Or other state know. laws, too. Yeah, I w- I'm going to look at ours first, and then I want to go further in whatever states have this program, the Pulse program. I know New Jersey's had it since 2011, but i got to dig a little deeper into it. Um 
it's more, and this is very important for providers out there, and we will have a full show on this, but um, Dr. Shreves did state that she firmly believes under the Pulse law that you're protected if a patient has a valid Pulse and the family tells you to do CPR and you say no, this paperwork says I don't have to, you yeah. should be protected. That's the whole point of having a Pulse well, here, well, here, Well, yes. here's an interesting thing because one of the things that she said was somebody did ask that question, what happens if you... if um, you have a mulst or a pulsed or whatever your state calls it, where basically it's you before you get into that condition, you and your your healthcare proxy, your lawyer, whatever, your physician discuss about what you want done for you in the event that you're in a life threatening critical illness, things like that. Do you want mechanical ventilation? Do you want chest compressions? Do you want us to do everything or do you want us to do nothing or do you want us to try to do things that yep. if it doesn't look right. like it's going to work? Um. The problem is, is they're they're revocable by the family members, and which is that is, and it was it's, po- it's, but that's it was absurd. brought up. I and, get, I get it, but that that's an absurd thing to me. What you know, the panel was like, well, that's kind of very rare, and they're like, has that ever happened to anybody? And I could tell you, everybody that put their hands up had to be an EMS provider. Oh yeah, oh, all yeah. the time. Because this time. doesn't Constant. happen in hospital, but. It, it sure as hell happens out in the field. Yeah, this happens. This has to I've happen. I've got a, He had a DNR, but do everything. The yes. the most selfish statement a human being can make is, "I'm not ready for someone else to die." Right. You're having and, me perform CPR, the spiritual destruction. Yeah. On the corpse of your mother, your father, whoever, because it makes you feel better that I'm doing something that I should right. be doing. Well, and, we do. And, we, no, we do it as providers too. We do. We'll, we'll do CPR on patients that are not viable. And we'll throw because them in the back of the ambulance to. and go balls to the wall, lights right. and sirens to the hospital because we think we that quote unquote it, it, it makes us feel better that we did CPR on that patient. Uh, Correct. Maybe so. right. I don't. And and it's a and she I, she turned. Well, it no, as, I'm not saying that anyone here does that. I'm uh, saying, yeah, I just, I'm, no, 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 no. I'm using the royal. But we. The, but everybody does it. We've seen that. Like a good old DRT release to Jesus is a <laughs> <laughs> classic. But no, but also, but like not. But you're you're talking about like a TRE Says protocol, but not not everybody has those. <laughs> no, protocols. I uh, <laughs> DRT. I meant dead right there, not TRE. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for the truth is, a lot of these cases, it's like. Uh, I'm, putting my crew at risk if i'm gonna do fake cpr to make someone feel better or the the quote-unquote slow code which just makes me cringe when oh my god the very it. the very notion of a slow code is both professionally and personally ethically wrong to me like i, agree. I either you either you fucking do it or you don't and if i catch you doing a slow code and you're not working it i'm gonna rip you a new one on the spot correct because listen do your job either you're gonna do it or you don't no and, and I, I buy that if you're gonna do it do it do but, it, but don't don't do it because it makes you feel better. Right. Oh, One God. of the things that she brought up with this discussion with palliative care and end of life decisions, which was really great to have, and it's something that you know we we were coming to you know I I tweeted out earlier in the day like every EMS clinician needs to have this. We need to be talking about this in classes. We need to be talking about this. We don't even do this in alphabet soup. You know, we always talk about ACLS. You do the, oh, everything's going great, and you do the postcode scenario, post-arrest care and all that. Well, what if post-arrest care is actually talking to the family and explaining to them that this is the way it is? Right. You know, and, you know, that or that. Maybe an ACLS scenario is that we walk into that 89-year-old that's, you know, got the G-tube and is contractured and was found unresponsive and met all the uh, Ontario, you know, the um, 
the uh, Opal's criteria, and we just say, listen, the, 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 the answer for the scenario is, look, I'm sorry, I know you're upset, yep. and I know this is terrible for you, but they've died. There well, is but nothing that, we're that gets back do. to what we were talking about earlier, where the whole theory behind CPR and ACLS is to do something. Mm-hmm. And initiating the idea of walking in and not doing something is kind of anathema to how most people think. Correct. I'm not saying again. But I'm not saying real. that it's right. It's something we have to but teach people real. to do. But that, yeah, that is the reality. I'm going to say most and, of the time. And she made a point of these kind of things when we do this stuff. It robs people of their dignity. Absolutely, hundred percent. She, I actually, it robs them of a dignified death. She was. I mean, of all the speakers we had, she was probably the one who really made me reflect the most and think about how I do things in the field. Um, all the others presented amazing information. I was like, man, I just absorbed it. But her, she like really made me think about how we handle these end of life situations. Yeah, she's brilliant. Uh, she was she was incredibly impressive. So I I really look forward to delving more into this palliative care end of life. She's got a couple more talks, um, I believe, on the Smack website, on the Smack podcast site, and also on the MCrit site. Um, she is brilliant. I've listened to her. She's presented at the MCrit conference before. Um, it really is thought provoking. Yeah, so we should try go and out and find. We should it. try and link those in the show notes for this one too. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, uh, I saw her leave. I was gonna run her down. I'm like, Doctor Shreves, would you do you want to come on our show? <laughs> be be my friend. But she looked she looked incredibly like she had to be somewhere. So that's fine. Well, I mean, you're in New York. You gotta, I, everyone's got to be, be somewhere, somewhere in New York. So the last couple things I want to go over because you guys mentioned this off the air, um, and it kind of piqued my interest. Talk to me about what they said about Raboa and TEE. So, <clears throat> T-E-E. so specifically, uh, Dr. Tehran, he, I don't know if Dr. Weingart was joking or not, so I believe Dr. Tehran's out at UPenn, at HUP. Yeah, probably. Uh, so I he said when there's a 911 call for a cardiac arrest, he hops on his bicycle and beats EMS there and <laughs> drops a, a transesophageal. Yeah, that was a good line. Yeah, T-E-E, and then he didn't deny it. So he no, might actually do was- it. So the... With his probe slung over his shoulder, <laughs> ready to go. So my my big takeaway from the TEE thing was that we're doing CPR wrong. Our hand placement's wrong because through the transesophageal echo, we can see what we're compressing, and we're off 50% of the time at least. Are you suggesting we do CPR wrong? Not only am I Perish the thought, Kevin. We're, no, I think we're doing it right. Heretic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, when it gets to the AHA recommendation where we place our hands may not be correct 50% of the time. Right. So That's a huge number. That's, that's a scary yeah, number. Yeah. That's a scary number. So he obviously can't recommend doing anything other than what is federally approved, AHA right. guidelines. But he's like, hopefully we can get this to a point where we have a better idea of where we can put our hands. Um, generally speaking, just left and just down uh, more distal from the head of where we so, traditionally would. And, and we're going to do a whole show on this because it's something that I've, I've been researching um, that I think is fascinating. And essentially, just for, for the uninitiated, a transesophageal echo, it's essentially a probe that goes down the esophagus posterior to an endotracheal tube, and it sits uh, right behind the heart. Mm-hmm. So you can actually see on a screen, as you can have a four-chamber view of the heart, you can see the heart move, whether or not there's actually any um, ventricular move motion or hypokinetic uh, ventricles at all. So that gives you a pretty direct view of the heart, so you can dynamically see what's happening in a cardiac arrest at that time. Um, This is interesting to me because aside from that 50% of the time we're putting our hands in the wrong place, is that when we talk off the air, we talk about things that are going to be happening in 10 years, and in 10 years, we're going to be doing this for everybody. I hope. I I really hope that uh, TE gets a little bit more widespread because just simple 
increasing effectiveness of CPR has positive outcomes. Yes. Just yeah, the science proves it. It's backed. And if we've been doing CPR wrong, it could be proved simply by dropping a probe and taking a look at a monitor. Like, oh, oh, you got to yeah. drop your hands down two inches. And there's there's sure. a little bit of training that ha- that goes into it, but it is a it's a little bit of training. So here's the thing. I mean, if there's anatomic variations in almost every person, absolutely. Then how is it possible that one landmark works for everybody? Well, right, but that's a, that's always the argument. I think we're CPR, trying to. I think we're just you know. trying to. Um, you and I can't wear the same suit jacket. No, Not but with I that think, attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I think the idea is we're trying to make the ballpark smaller where we're trying to get to. No, I hear you. So you're you're making the bullseye. They, you're trying to make the bullseye a little bit smaller for you to hit. Did they compare yeah. transthoracic echo with transesophageal echo? Yeah, at completely all, inferior. Better. So TE yeah. T- com- T- is much better than transthoracic. Yeah. Okay. Better picture, okay. better view, better everything, and, and can be used in the middle of cardiac arrest. Right. Yeah. Most, most specifically. Yeah, with tran- transthoracic, you have to stop doing compressions and actually. Yeah, it's in the, the it's in the way. Right. For, to point blank. Um, they also talked a little bit more about CPR, but TEE, I, I really look forward to talking about that because um, it's a fairly new concept to me. I know it's not a new concept for medicine, but it's a new concept as something used in cardiac arrest to me. I think it's a new concept for out of hospital. Oh, absolutely. Oh, 100% I mean, out of hospital. There is exactly zero data on out of hospital for TEE. Because I remember going to medic school and being doing my clinical rotations. Like, hey, you want to go see a T? And I'm like, I don't know. What's a T? Like, t- like a tea party? You know, and then they brought Is there going to be like a mouse with a hat? Yeah, and a tea bar? Like, what, what is that? But they, that's what it was. You know, they yeah, put, saw. The, you know, put the probe in. They're like looking for valvular abnormalities. They're looking for clots. septal defects, clots, all sorts of effusions. And it got a great view. A lot I'm of like, information comes out of that real quick placement, yeah. real quick view. You can find out And it's a lot. something you can do in in the out of hospital world yeah. and it's pretty reliable. So the, the education and and we talked about this on a, on a previous episode. Um, the ultrasound fellowship is its own thing now. There's a lot of information. So real quick, TEE, you can actually get twenty different views of the heart. Um, just you know, by dropping the the probe itself. It's been reduced to a one day training program for most emergency physicians and like I said it takes a day. And it's it's super easy to use. It's very intuitive. Um, and like I said, I, I think it's going to be one of the newer things we see uh, over the next couple of years. Yeah. So, and you mentioned Reboa. Um, I'm excited about Reboa, so I want to hear what they actually said. Um, let's see here. So it was, I believe, Doctor Budarakis, uh, the trauma surgeon Leon. Doctor Leon is much easier. <laughs> um, sure. That's that sounds like how. So it's he was now. talking about um, use of Reboa pre hospitally and. The start, idea. start from the beginning. It, clarify for the listeners what Reboa is. Oh, Reboa. Um, so basically, in a nutshell, Reboa... Well, it's, it's resuscitative endovascular occlusion, uh, balloon occlusion of the aorta. So, yes. The quick and layman's term is they're going to put something right up your femoral um, artery, and they're going to inflate a balloon pretty much just proximal to your renal arteries. It depends on the zone. There's depends a on, yeah, it depends zones, on the yeah. zone, but that's, uh, uh, to my knowledge, that's the place because they really want to preserve your brain. Um, the idea of Reboa is it's an abdominal tourniquet on the inside. They're going to block off your aorta to increase perfusion to your heart, your lungs, and your major organs like your liver, and, of course, your brain. Um, it's apparently really quick to insert with the help of ultrasound, um, and uh, Dr. Leon is a big fan of it because if you're starting femoral lines and trauma, he has immediate access to insert the, the catheter in the balloon. Right. So the, the, the quick and dirty of it is essentially to insert Reboa. Um, it goes into the femoral artery. You have to establish a cortis a lot of times. Um, 
it depends on the size, depends on the packaging. Yeah, femoral line. Um, you know, it could be up to, I think it's like seven or ten French. Um, so you insert a cordis and essentially insert a balloon into the aorta. It inflates, and that's how you reduce blood loss. Um, it has to be done through guided ultrasound. It's a, it's a physician skill at this point. Um, if you can't actually access the femoral artery, it has to be accessed through a cut down, which is going to be kind of the hang up on the pre-hospital side. But again, and, and we're going to do a show about this, too, because it, in five or ten years, this is going to be a thing that we're going to be doing in the field fairly regularly. I think it'll be soon. I think with ultrasound, this will be the, the logical next step. Right. And th- one of the nice things about it, too, is that the, the complications of Reboa are actually fairly few. Um, they exist. There are a lot of it tends to uh, correspond to lower limb ischemia. But generally speaking, there's not a whole lot of complications for it. I mean, that's literally what it's doing. So Yeah, that stands to reason. <laughs> so give me a quick wrap-up all in all. Was it worth the trip? Worth Absolutely. the day? Absolutely. Except for the quiet car on the train. Oh. Why would you get in the quiet car oh, on the train? There was trouble. no signs. There were no signs. Yeah, Someone shushed me. Yeah, Someone shushed you. Yeah. Yes. I, I upset the sardines in the fish can. It the sardines That didn't work well. Come on. Um, the hot dogs were great. Well, it's New York. <laughs> of course. Well, if you're you, right, when in New York, have a hot dog. Did um, you? Okay. Sidebar. Have you heard about I this? O- I offered number of number of places. We went to Papaya Dog over on Lexington. It was okay, I'll take that. Have you heard about this abomination? And I know this is a huge distraction from what we're talking about. Because you're talking about New York food. I get all excited about hot dogs and pizza. Someone in Philadelphia has no. decided that they're going to wrap a cheesesteak in pizza and right, call it a cheesesteak burrito. First of all, you said Philadelphia. I'm just... Don't you talk about my city like that? I love Philadelphia, but okay. I can't tell if I'm if I'm horrified or excited by it because no. I like why, is, oh. no, you why? Can't mix cheesesteak and pizza. Well, no, whoa, 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 back back it up. No, you, you, can, you absolutely no, can you mix cheesesteak and pizza. My friend, no. my friend, have you ever had a no. cheesesteak pizza? Yeah. No, a pizza because with cheesesteak belongs on cheesesteak pizza. No, 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 no. Stop this. No, no, no. We are going to get you a proper cheesesteak pizza. And you're I am be not like, eating it. No, the well, fuck I mean, you are, and you're eating it. Expose yourself. That's to like new a ramen omelet. It doesn't a, work. A ramen. A romlet. Ramen yeah. omelet. Listen, you haven't. Li- <laughs> Listen, this is good, like Dan trying new things. Let, let the epi go. Put some cheese on your pizza. Go, it's time. Pizza. It's time for some new stuff. No. In your tomato life. sauce on cheesesteak. No. Oh my god, you've never had a pizza steak like just a cheesesteak. No. With- oh, dude. <laughs> I'm starting to question our. Fr- How did we get to New York together? Like, I'm really starting to question our ability to coexist. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap this up All real right, quick. So wrap this one up. one last thing. What's the condiment you get on a hot dog? Oh, I actually onions I went, and mustard. I went with cheddar and onion crunch. And it was phenomenal. Wow, those are both the wrong answer. That's amazing. Chili? No, I was just gonna say straight mustard, but I, uh, but, the, the, the idea of uh, cheese the, and onions the, on no, it doesn't the, do no, it. No, the mustard, also. the um, the the spicy mustard. Yeah, and you got the uh, the the uh, onions. Yeah, no, you know the 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 no, you, you do that. Sauce. It's I, I phenomenal. Do no, I had the I had the onion like uh, fried onion frizzes on. for the the crunch and the texture. Come on, but I mean, I, I listen. Either way, it's it's a New York hot dog, and it's, it's a New York it's, hot dog. It's superior it's to a Chicago snap. hot dog. It's, so oh, it's I'll, brilliant. I'll it. Most things you in New York are superior to most things in Chicago, especially pizza. I can't. Also, I can't, do you know what's superior get to Chicago? My rings I can't, the Philadelphia Eagles are superior to Chicago. I can't get my that's all for today's episode. My socks off, but it was a great couple hot dogs. I'm just gonna say. All right, so we're going to wrap this up. Um, there's a lot of stuff that they covered today. I'm excited to hear everything that they went over. We're going to link all that stuff in the show notes. It's for a the very overrun. long episode. I'm sorry. That's fine. For the we overrun, my name is Ed Bowder. I'm Dan Schwester. And I'm Kevin Mazza. And we'll talk to you guys next time. Get home safe. <laughs>